Am I, am I on? Can you hear me okay? Good evening to you all. Uh, just a, a brief little bio for those of you that uh, don't know me. My wife, family and I have been coming here to connect for over 20 years. I'm uh, married to my first wife, the stunning Linda over there, for 33 years. And uh, as you may know, many of you may know, she works in the children's ministry here in the church. I'm in financial services. And uh, we have twin, adult twin daughters. One of them is uh, married and a wonderful son-in-law, Dale, and a granddaughter who's 15 months old, who uh, is our pride and joy. So enough about me. Let's now get on to uh, a little bit. Before we start with the, the, the series, of the Nehemiah 5, we'd just like to update you on the Agents of Change initiative that our church, the journey that our church has been on probably over the, the last year or so. What, what we realized as a church leadership was that we need to more effectively harness all the gifts and talents and resources that we have at our church to make more of an impact uh, around all the challenges that we face in our country uh, in terms of healthcare, education, the challenges are huge. And so as part of that uh, journey, we had a consultation in late November last year where we, it was an open invitation, I know quite a number of you folk were there, uh, just to brainstorm uh, what we could do differently, get some ideas. And from that, we've put together a, a kind of program uh, for the year going forward as such. Uh, and one of the things that was part that came through very clearly was that people wanted to know more about all the various ministries that our church and people in our church were involved in. So if you were here last week, uh, all that awesome stuff you saw in the hall, that was part of, of, of the initiative uh, in terms of seeing all the, the ministries. Uh, that And 29 different organizations signed up. Uh, that are involved in various uh, ministries to the poor and the marginalized. So tackling the big challenges, unemployment, housing, education, healthcare, that's a queue. If you don't have medical aid, you go to a clinic and you sit the whole day in the queue. And then if you need to actually uh, go to a doctor, to a hospital, then you go to hospital and spend another whole day in a queue. So that's reality for many of our fellow South Africans. So. Faced with those big challenges, as I said, uh, we have put together this kind of program, uh, and it's a fluid thing, so we're certainly uh, refining as we go along, but uh, as I touched on, supporting and strengthening our existing ministries, part of that was what we did last Sunday with the showcase of all the various ministries that we saw in the hall, and mobilizing our church family to get more involved in some kind of ministry themselves or some kind of initiative, and that's really going to be the focus uh, tonight uh, in terms of uh, challenging each one of us to look at our lives and saying what, what are we doing from our position of privilege, most of us are privileged, what are we doing in terms of what God says uh, with regard to the poor. We're also going to be putting together some life group material around education and sensitizing us around the theology of social justice, encouraging me meaningful cross-cultural relationships, that's a big challenge. We still live in our apartheid uh, segments and there's uh, not, not enough cross-cultural mixing that's happening, so we want to encourage more of that, and obviously also praying for direction uh, from God around some new things that he may want us to do. So that's just a bit of an overview of the Agents of Change uh, program, how are we going to do that? What we've decided to do is create portfolios where like-minded people can get together so we can really start making a bigger impact. There's a lot of stuff happening, some of it a bit, bit disjointed, the left hand not knowing what the right is doing, and so as you can see, uh, education, employment and entrepreneurship, healthcare, 
special projects, emergency uh, relief, uh, advocacy, that's changing laws, etc. We feel uh, we, we need to be advocates uh, in, in that space. And so if you have an interest in any of those particular areas, please come and chat to me because we're going to be forming those little teams and brainstorming and getting point people for each of those particular uh, portfolios so that someone new, for example, coming to the church uh, who wants to get involved in a healthcare ministry of some sort, we can say, uh, that, that's the point person for healthcare and that person will know there are three or four different ministries around the healthcare space and link you up with, 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 with the right individual. So that's the idea. So please come and chat to myself or one of the other leaders if you are keen uh, to get more involved in, in this process and we're very excited about it. So moving on now to Nehemiah chapter 5, called the haves and the have-nots. I thought that might be a good place to start looking at the haves and the have-nots, just an aerial view of a poor suburb and a wealthy suburb. We know there are, are big gaps uh, in our country uh, as to where people live. So just the reality check of our own haves and have-nots before we leap into Nehemiah. Recapping very quickly, uh, Nehemiah uh, was uh, one of the kind of senior intellectuals in the Jewish uh, uh, intelligentsia in Jerusalem. They were taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. Then the Persians uh, took over, conquered the Babylonians, and Nehemiah ended up as the cupbearer to the Persian kings, king whose name was Artaxerxes. And he asked uh, Artaxerxes if he could go back to Jerusalem when he found out that the city was in ruins, and Artaxerxes gave, gave him permission to go back and rebuild the city walls, and he gathered a team around him. If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, you'd have heard uh, this, this, the story of, uh, of the resistance, the opposition uh, that they faced as they rebuilt the wall sword on one side and kind of spades and shovels on the other hand uh, as they faced a lot of external challenges in the rebuilding of, of, the, of the walls. Just a little picture of what it might have looked like back in the day, Nehemiah's time, and in those days fortified cities were very important because there were a lot of battles going on and so to have high walls and big strong gates was extremely important to be able to defend your little city-state and uh, that was the project Nehemiah undertook to rebuild the walls. Now, what uh, I also found was uh, very interesting was that Nehemiah was uh, faced with a big outcry. And the outcry, as we read here, was from the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. And I think we, we know the Bible is written mainly in the masculine uh, sense, and so it must be very serious if the wives were also complaining, I think. So very serious problem. The people and their wives were, were upset about uh, something. And so what, what, what we see is that after dealing with some serious threats from uh, external enemies, Nehemiah is now faced with a great outcry from his own people where poor Jews were complaining about being exploited by rich Jews. And I think we can relate uh, this term, a great outcry, to what we experience almost daily uh, here in our own country. Poor people often cry out in desperation, and we have become immune and desensitized to the cries of the poor because we hear so many outcries. That is a dangerous place for us to be in. The challenge is, what are we going to do about the outcries around us. Do we ignore them and hope the problem goes away? 
or do we get involved, as we're going to see that Nehemiah did. I also found it very interesting, something that I hadn't seen before. I've read Nehemiah uh, several times, but uh, in preparing for the sermon, it was interesting to note that uh, throughout history, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting, getting confused, get, getting ahead of myself. Uh, what, 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 what the point I wanted to make is that uh, I, I think what we see with Nehemiah is very common in terms of uh, the strategy uh, of, of Satan in terms of trying to, to prevent God's work uh, being achieved. And he often uses two main uh, tactics, the first being to distract people with external challenges, as we saw happening with Nehemiah, the, the armies of the, the other governors in the region uh, were, were not keen for, for the Jews to become a, a local power, and there was uh, uh, challenges and, and, and distraction from that. And then also uh, with trying to sow discord between believers themselves. And that's what we're going to see tonight, uh, what happened with the, with the Jewish people. And sadly, uh, I think we've seen many examples where God's agenda is undermined by Christians fighting amongst themselves, be it interpersonal conflict or theological disputes around non-core issues. So now let's go and move on to what this great outcry was all about. I think there were three, three main reasons for this great outcry. The first one was the building program caused economic pressures as normal income generation for many of the builders was interrupted. Many people had neglected their day jobs uh, to focus on the wall building project and thus were earning less money. Secondly, there was probably a bad harvest that year, which meant food shortages and obviously higher prices for food. And the third reason was uh, the Jews having to pay heavy taxes to their Persian overlords as they were an occupied nation. That's just a, a map of what uh, Persia, the Persian Empire looked like. The Persians had overthrown the Babylonians, as I mentioned, and become the regional superpower, ruling most of the territory from Egypt, uh, as you can see in the map in the, in the east, or rather in the west, right through Asia Minor and up to the Middle East to where modern-day India is. And uh, where Persia uh, is is where Iran is today. The modern Iran is uh, what Persia was uh, in Nehemiah's time. Persian foreign policy allowed conquered people to live in their own lands and practice their own religions with the local governors responsible for collecting the royal taxes on behalf of the Persian rulers. So these tough times had resulted in poor Jews having to borrow money to pay their taxes, struggling farmers having to mortgage their land, and some families even becoming so desperate that they had to sell their children as slaves. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, that the Jewish law encouraged the rich to look after the poor when they were struggling in hard times, and limited slavery was in fact also allowed as a way to pay, pay off your debts. So if you couldn't pay off your debts, you or your children could then be used as, as labor to, to settle a debt that you couldn't uh, repay. So let's see now what this great outcry uh, says. Let's read just these two verses. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we have the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews. And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. But some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, I want to focus on those 
two words that I've highlighted, uh, enslaved and powerless. In reality, the complaint of the poor is the same throughout the ages, as demonstrated here in Nehemiah 5. There are two main issues which the poor feel with great intensity. Firstly, a sense of being absolutely trapped or enslaved in a vicious circle of poverty. This is what it looks like graphically. Poverty tends to lead to oppression, which leads to injustice, which leads back to more poverty. Poverty is a trap, which is like a treadmill that you can't get out of because it's really systemic. Although the poor desperately want to escape, they can't because they are stuck in this oppressive cycle. It isn't simply a case of pull yourself together and find a job. If you live in a township, you're trapped in a home of around three by four meters with four, possibly even more, other people and one light bulb. There's no place to do homework or to study quietly as much as you'd like to. And so one can easily become enslaved in a system which is really hard to break out of. I met a young man recently in his early 20s who desperately wants to complete his schooling. The huge problem he's faced with is that he has no money for transport to get to the classes. Secondly, let's move on to the feeling of powerlessness. This is a genuine cry of the poor, wherever they are. The poor generally don't have strong family support structures, good education, social connections and clout. Nobody really listens to the poor. So often the only way they know how to get attention is to stone and burn and blockade because then somebody comes and listens to their grievances. We've seen several examples of that just up the road over the last week. The poor are genuinely powerless. We talk a lot about empowering and empowerment. But the church really needs to listen and to attempt to create long-lasting solutions. It isn't just about giving somebody 100 rand, as good as that might seem, and in that way appeasing our conscience that we've done something. We have to move in for the long, long, long term. We need to build and supplement health and education systems. We need to provide more hand-up facilities, which are practical and uplifting without being condescending or paternalistic. Empowerment also means doing what the poor need help with and not what we think they need. Now let's move back to Nehemiah and how he responded to this complaint of the poor. Nehemiah was a man who felt very deeply, as we see in, in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah heard about the state that Jerusalem was in, uh, it says that he wept and mourned for days when he heard about the walls that were broken down and the, how just despondent the people were. Now he burns with anger when hearing about the hardships of the poor. Do we have an honest indignation or anger about the plight of the poor? Are we sick of the poor or sick of the plight of the poor? We need to ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts so that we can feel the pain of the poor and the marginalized. Another important lesson we can learn from Nehemiah is that he always reflected before acting. Quite a quaint little phrase here. We read that he took counsel with himself. So he had a conversation with himself. Uh, and uh, we'll see that through Nehemiah. I think that's a, a lesson that uh, many of us uh, can learn 
because often when we find we get into difficulty with relationships, we, we look back and often think, gee, if only I'd thought a bit more before I'd opened my big mouth. So uh, Nehemiah is a good lesson on, on thinking before one speaks or acts. Uh, and then what, what we'll see later, which I found extremely interesting and rather surprising, is that often Nehemiah did this pondering and uh, consulting with himself, he actually realized that he and his nobles were also part of the problem. We'll touch on that uh, in a moment. And then after reflection, Nehemiah then acts decisively, bringing charges against these nobles and officials. Uh, and the charge was uh, one of charging interest on loans. The Jewish law didn't allow interest to be charged on loans. And that's what these guys were doing, uh, the rich that were exploiting the poor. Now, before, before we go on to, uh, with, with the, the story, I think it's useful to just touch on uh, two uh, parts of uh, the Jewish law around the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year. I found this very fascinating. I haven't read this passage for a long time. You can read it in Leviticus 25 if you want to fill in some of the gaps. But essentially, it's uh, really radical stuff. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. And during that Sabbath year, the land was not to be actively farmed. So the agricultural land had to lie fallow, which was, uh, the farmers will tell you that's a good thing. You can't overuse land over and over again. Uh, and so no farming was allowed. Debts were to be forgiven. Uh, Jewish bond slaves were to be freed and even given livestock and food, etc., to get them back on their feet again. The Jubilee year, which was every 50 years, was even more radical, where landowners who had lost, lots, lost their land could take it back again. We certainly don't have time now to debate the contentious land reform issues in our own country. And it may be dangerous to draw any parallels between ancient Jewish law and our 2018 reality. However, we can get a sense of God's heart where issues of justice, equality, and fair distribution of land and resources are concerned as they were part of the laws that he gave to his chosen people. So, Nehemiah then boldly reprimands the exploiters in verse 9. He says, what you are doing is not right. Are we calling out injustice or remaining silent? In verse 10, Nehemiah publicly confesses his own personal guilt in the injustices which had been committed against the poor. You can read there, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. So that's where Nehemiah had uh, realized that he was part of the problem. I remember uh, there was a silly little thing when I was a kid that when you point a finger at somebody, there are three fingers pointing back at you. And I think Nehemiah had a bit of that with his indignation and uh, all the terrible stuff that was happening and then realizing that he was actually uh, breaking the same, same laws uh, as the people were that the poor were, were complaining about. So Nehemiah then... Uh, as I said, uh, also found himself uh, part, part of the problem. And uh, I think for us, this is a reminder that our senior leaders, the senior leaders of God's people, are imperfect and fallible human beings that can also make mistakes. Are we acknowledging our, our own sin and complicity in things which displease God? And are we praying regularly enough for our leaders? Then we move on to what Nehemiah then instructed uh, these rich exploiters to do. And uh, the term restitution 
can be a sensitive one in our context, especially around the land issue that we know is a big debate at the moment. The Cambridge Dictionary describes uh, the word restitution as follows. It's got two, two parts to it. The first part is the return of objects that were stolen or lost. And the second part is the payment made for damages or loss. And in verse 11, we see that the rich were instructed to not only return the interest that they'd been charging, but also to return the fields, vineyards, orchards, and houses that they had taken from the poor. We find that restitution is quite an important theme in the Bible. For example, in Luke 19, you'll remember that short little guy, Zacchaeus, who had to climb a tree to see Jesus. Uh, and Jesus then went to go and uh, have a meal at his house. And during that meal, Zacchaeus uh, said uh, to everybody present, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Are there perhaps any areas where we either corporately as a church or personally as individuals need to be considering restitution in some form? The rich were very positive uh, in Nehemiah's request. We see that they agree and take a solemn oath to keep their word. And then in verse 13, uh, Nehemiah does something which is quite strange, not something we do in our culture, but uh, visual kind of object lessons were very powerful uh, back in the day. And Nehemiah reinforces uh, this agreement with a symbolic action, kind of unfolding uh, the, the, the folds of his robe and saying, as you can read there, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. So, as I say, it's strange to us, but this kind of curse formula, as it was called, was a conventional way of compelling commitment to a course of action. So everybody was uh, on board with uh, the restitution that they, they'd agreed to do. Then chapter 5 in, ends off with a, a, an interesting conclusion. Because we see Nehemiah here giving a long explanation of how noble and kind he was not to demand the governor's allowance that he was entitled to. He was the governor uh, of that territory. And uh, I, I think there's possibly a bit of kind of guilt coming in here because in this whole issue that the poor were complaining about and he'd found that he was part, he and his nobles are part of the problem. Uh, I think he's ending off saying, yes, but God, I've also done some good stuff. So uh, please don't be too, too hard on me because I know I've also messed up with this uh, charging of interesting. So let's just read, read uh, that passage uh, together, uh, for verse 14 to 19, uh, which is the, the last couple of verses uh, in chapter 5. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed uh, to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, that's 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, you know, all those bad, terrible people that aren't as good as I am, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. So the kind of land part, you know, maybe he was just charging interest on the loans that he'd given. He didn't uh, acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, 
as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep. Let's move on again so you can, can follow. One, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I've done for these people. So that's how chapter 5 ends with the Nehemiah sort of saying, sorry, Lord, I have, I have uh, tr tr tried to do things right. I know I've messed up uh, in some areas, but uh, in other areas, I certainly haven't uh, ex exploited the, the situation uh, that, uh, that I found myself in. Now let's uh, apply some of these principles to our own reality. The plight of the poor in our own country is in a serious crisis. We live in a country which has the largest gap in the world between the income of the rich and the poor. Over half our population, that's some 30 million people, live on less than 992 rand a month. I think I need to repeat this. 30 million of our fellow South Africans living on under a thousand rand a month. Since we live in one of the most unequal societies in the world, we each need to examine our lives closely to identify where we, just like Nehemiah, was had to maybe complicit in some way in the oppression of the poor. Poverty is the church's problem, not only the government's. Jesus clearly commissioned us to take care of the poor and needy. In, in his very first public sermon, recorded in Luke 4, uh, Jesus talks about the poor and needy. Let's just read that together. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that year of the Lord, Lord's favor ties in with that jubilee year that we were talking about in Leviticus, where people were, were given back their possessions and kind of the clocks were reset, reset as it were. So an interesting link there back to, to, to that concept of the jubilee year. And I think obviously there's a spiritual element to, to uh, this particular passage, but clearly as we're going to see in, the, in another sermon of Jesus, it wasn't just about spiritual stuff, it was certainly about practical things uh, related to the poor. And this is quite a sobering passage uh, that we're going to read and, and this, is, this in fact uh, this, this sermon was two days before Jesus died. So we can see that Jesus started his very first sermon, touches on the poor and needy and this was in his last sermon two days before his crucifixion. Uh, it's a fairly long passage, but I think uh, useful to, to read through together. Uh, and it's headed, the separating of the sheep and the goats. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep to his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It's abundantly clear that the Bible says that we are to that we have responsibility for the poor and the needy, reaching them and caring for them in a real way. Charity is not the solution to poverty. Economic empowerment is the answer, as we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5. We need business people and entrepreneurs who are willing to stimulate the economy for the sake of the poor. God's call today is to business people uh, who through their skills can reverse uh, our economic situation, not just giving handouts, but creating genuine economic stimulation on a large scale. Today, God is calling business people and entrepreneurs to create long-term economic reversal conditions. Is that perhaps you? You may still be at school, but you're not too young to start thinking about these things and debating some of these tough issues. You're the next generation of leaders, and we need to be doing things differently as you have responsibility to engage and challenge and make a contribution to the changes that we need to see. We need to ask God to soften our hearts so that we don't cross over and walk on the other side, as we saw that the, the church people did in the story of the Good Samaritan. We need to be like Nehemiah and take bold action to tackle the crisis, both as individuals and corporately as a church, so that we can be the salt and light that we are called to be. We need to call it out, as Nehemiah did, wherever we encounter injustice of any kind. We need to be boldly saying, what you are doing is not right. And where we may be part of the problem, we need to examine how we can make restitution to try and set things right. You may be a bit zoned out now, thinking, I'm still at school or at university, and I'm too young uh, to do anything here with all these big problems. This certainly isn't the case. Think of the example of David, a young farm boy who was used powerfully by God to sort out a problem the adults couldn't deal with. 
when an army of battle-hardened professional soldiers were all scared of the giant Goliath. Just as David killed the giant, so young Christ followers in 2018 can achieve miraculous things, slaying some of the giants that we are faced with through the power of God who is able to raise the dead. Think also of Katie Davis, a young girl from Nashville, Tennessee, who in her final year of high school went on a short-term mission trip to Uganda. So be careful of short-term mission trips. They can be dangerous. If you go with Shane, it could change your life. Katie was so moved by the poverty and need that she saw in Uganda that she essentially gave up her life. She was due to go to university and had a steady boyfriend, and she broke up with her boyfriend, and much to her parents' horror, uh, didn't even go and study and went off to Uganda. And uh, she then uh, adopted 14 orphan girls and set up a home for them. If you have, haven't read it, I suggest you get a copy of her book, which is called Kisses from Katie. It's an awesome read. She's a, a remarkable young woman and is now married in the organization that she started called Amazema Ministries. She's actually 10 years old uh, this year and now ministers to hundreds of other children in Uganda, not just the 14 orphan girls that, that she adopted. Now, I'm not suggesting that you pack up your studies uh, or leave the country, as Katie did. We've got plenty of need right here in South Africa. However, we can't underestimate the power of each of us doing something, however small, to help those less fortunate than ourselves. I, I was thinking uh, when I preached this morning at uh, Musenberg, uh, one of the ladies in the, in the prayer before the, the, uh, the sermon uh, had this picture of a drop of water and the big impact that can make on a puddle. And it made me think of a personal experience uh, that Linda and I, uh, some part of that sort of crazy gang of people that swim throughout the year. And we swim very often at Dalebrook down in Cork Bay. And the other morning we were the first uh, in the pool. And I was just absolutely amazed sort of as I swam. The pool was completely flat. And I just did one stroke and I just saw these ripples go all the way out across the pool. So it just kind of reminded me of that, of how kind of one little motion can affect this huge expanse of pool around me. And so in the same way, if we all just say, well, no, I can't do anything, these problems are too big, uh, then certainly nothing will happen. But if each of us do our little bit, we can achieve huge things for God. And even more so that uh, we, God, God is doing it, uh, not us. So that ripple effect of our combined efforts will have a huge impact, I think, on our city and our country and our continent. And you'll be pleased to know that I'm nearly done. When you sort of hear about some points, then you know the preacher's getting towards the, 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 the end, end of his uh, talk. And so just to end off with four lessons uh, that I think we can learn from Nehemiah. Firstly, we need to pray for soft hearts so that we can be moved to action to address the plight of the poor. Secondly, we need more righteous anger to call out all forms of injustice. Thirdly, we each need to reflect on our own lives, like Nehemiah, to face up where we have failed personally. And finally, we, we may need to make restitution where that is necessary. This is painful and uncomfortable, but a necessary journey for the privileged. Shall we just close off in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privileged position most of us find ourselves in. As we examine your word, there's some hard stuff that we see about the 
your heart for the poor. And we know that we want to be in tune with you, and we want to make a difference uh, here in our country at this time. Uh, we know the problems are huge, and, and often we just feel so helpless and hopeless when we see the enormity of the issues around us. But we just ask that you would remind us that we are partnering with the king of the universe. Your power is unlimited. You have the power to raise the dead and do things that we can't even dream or imagine. So Lord, remind us of who's in charge and remind us that we need to simply bring our five loaves and fishes like that little boy did and you can multiply it and use it miraculously and awesomely. So we just lay ourselves before you now and just ask that you would minister to each one of us as we reflect on these things and just see how we can be used by you to make a difference here in our country and be the salt and light that we want to be for you. Amen.